0: Now, there's a question that almost everyone wrestles with today, and I'm talking about people outside the church as well as people inside the church. This question has kept many people from faith, and this question has also shipwrecked the faith of of many believers. Actually, it's a question that's been around for centuries, and the question is this. If God is a good God and a powerful God, then why is the world so messed up? Right? If God's a good God, if he's all-powerful, then why are things the way they are? Why all the suffering? Why all the pain? Why all the violence and oppression and war and injustice? Closer to home, why uh, why are, are all these terrible things happening in our country today? Even closer to home, why is this terrible thing happening to me? Why this sickness? Why this tragedy? Why this family? Why my family? Why my marriage? Why would God allow this? Why didn't God Why didn't God stop this? Yeah, if God's a good God and if he's a powerful God, then why? Why? And when it comes to understanding who God is and what God is up to in the world, when it comes to trusting God with our lives, our why questions are the most profound and practical questions that we wrestle with. Like here's a very Committed believer. She's walked with God for years. She loves God. She's active in her church. She reads her Bible. She prays. She shares her faith. She's she's generous with her time and money. And she's just been diagnosed with a potentially terminally ill uh, illness at age forty. Why? Why? This doesn't make any sense. Here's a young man. He loves God. He's also been faithful in his walk with God. He meets a young woman who he's madly in love with, wants to spend the rest of his life with, and uh, they're making plans and all of this stuff, and then at the last minute, she bails on him. Why? I mean, all the circumstantial indicators, uh, which he believed to be God's will, were all lined up, pointing to his desired outcome, and then it's just over just like that? I mean, why? Why would God take me down a path that leads to a dead end like this? I heard Tim Mackey tell a story about how when he was a, a young uh, young pastor, he was uh, talking to a junior high uh, age skateboarder. Uh, he They had this church called Skate Church, and uh, Tim is a skater, and uh, this kid was a Christ follower, and he attended a Bible study that Tim was doing, and uh, one night, this very happy-go-lucky kid came in, but the kid was just all bummed out because... His family dog had gotten hit by a car that week. And he was really struggling. He was like, why why did God allow this? I mean, did God cause this? And then he asked this very pointed question. He said, did God hate my dog? Did God hate my dog? Now, the way you answer these why questions shapes how you interpret your world. The way you answer these why questions directs the way you live. It determines the condition of your heart, whether you have peace peace of soul, whether you have peace and hope or whether you live in misery or turmoil. The scriptures teach us that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. So what does that mean? Well, Paul Tripp in his excellent new book defines God's sovereignty this way, which as I said last week is a resource that I found very, very helpful for preparing these messages, but Paul Tripp asks, so what does it mean when the Bible says that God is sovereign? It means that God is in absolute control of his world and everything that happens without any gaps, limits, interference, or thwarting of his rule. It means that God alone determines all that will happen and rules the means by which everything will happen. It means that God never has questions, never is surprised, never is frustrated, never wonders, never is greeted with mystery, never wishes he could have or should have or would have done something different, never is waiting, never is, feels helpless, never faces anything that he, doesn't, that he can't figure out, and he, finds him, and, and he never faces anything where he finds himself at a loss, no one can back God into a corner. He is never pressed to do something. There is no authority over him that he has to answer to. He does what he pleases, decides what he wants, and acts like it, as he wants. And to say that God is sovereign simply to mean, means that God is God and no one is like him. Now, if that's not good enough, he, he's not done yet. He goes on, everything in the world that is ordered and regular... Like the passing of seasons, day and night, the rise and fall of tides, and infancy to old age are all the result of God's sovereign rule over the world. He decides how his world will operate and then rules over the operations he's decided on. Everything in the world that seems disordered or chaotic to us is also the result of God's sovereign rule over his world. His wisdom doesn't always seem wise to us. What would seem best to us is not what is not the best that he's ordained for us. What seems tragically out of control is under his careful and constant control. Understanding that we live in an unchangeable, unshakable world of God's rule, that changes everything we think about ourselves and our world <clears throat> and life itself. Wow. Now, It's true. All he said is true. But when we encounter hardship and trouble and tragedy and pain and suffering in our lives or in the lives of people we love, when we encounter things like miscarriages and children with cancer, Those things call our core beliefs into question, right? I mean, we go into this why questioning default mode. Why did God allow this to happen? Why didn't he keep this from happening to him, to me, to her? Why? 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 Why this? Why now? And as I said, we're not the first people to ask these kinds of questions. So take your Bible and find your way to Isaiah chapter 6. The passage that we looked at last week, Isaiah chapter 6, we will begin reading in verse 1. Isaiah 6, 1, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me. I'm, I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Now, last week, we spent all morning working through this passage and we were focused on God's holiness. And God's holiness is most definitely the main idea In this passage, but this strange, bizarre, otherworldly scene of God's throne room in heaven also speaks clearly and loudly about his sovereignty. Now, I really didn't unpack this last week, but now I want to give you the background to Isaiah's vision here in the temple. The passage begins with, in the year that King Uzziah died. So what is so significant about that time stamp? Well, King Uzziah had a very long, prosperous reign in Judah, and during his reign, Israel had prospered uh, politically and militarily. Israel had regained national prominence on the world stage. Uzziah, who reigned 52 years, had conquered the Philistines and the Arabs, and the Ammonites paid tribute to Israel. Peace and safety and prosperity marked the land. And it would not be too far-fetched to say that many in Israel, maybe even Uzziah himself, believed that Uzziah was the promised Messiah of David's line. So these were days of peace and prosperity for the people of Israel. But there's more going on here. By the way, at the end of his life, Uzziah became proud and went into the temple to offer incense, which was something that only the high priest was allowed to do. And because of his pride and arrogance the Lord struck him with leprosy. And so he lived the last 10 years of his uh, rulership as a leper and was never able to go in the temple again. But even so, Judah prospered as a nation under his rule, but peace and prosperity caused God's people Uh, to become smug and proud, absorbed in materialism and pleasure-seeking and selfishly looking out for themselves rather than loving God with all their mind, body, soul, and strength and loving their neighbor as themselves, And as a result, the land of Israel was filled with idolatry and immorality and injustice. And to make matters even worse... A few years before the end of King Uzziah's reign, Assyria, a great imperial power to the north of Israel, rose up and it began conquering every nation in its path. And now, in the year that King Isaiah died, the Assyrian army is marching toward Israel. God's judgment is coming. So this is a moment of national crisis. Everything is falling apart. Israel's hope for a lasting Davidic messianic kingdom seems to be over. And at this point, Isaiah goes into the temple one day, and I imagine he's got a heavy heart. I imagine that his mind is full of what ifs and why questions. And it's at this point that God gives him a vision of what is really going on behind the scenes. In the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, he says, seated on a throne in heaven. In other words, he's saying, I saw his power and his might and his authority. He says, my eyes have seen the king, the real king, the Lord of hosts, meaning I saw his holy sovereignty ruling over all things. So yes, Uzziah had died, yes, the Assyrian army is knocking on the door, yes, devastation and destruction is coming, but God is still on the throne, and that's the bottom line for God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty means he is in control. He has the authority as the only sovereign one in the universe, and he is in control of all things. Now... When God showed Isaiah what was really going on in the world, that gave Isaiah the humble confidence to answer God's call and to be God's spokesman to God's people during those disturbing days. In the year that King Isaiah died, it could just as easily be read into your life as in the year that I was diagnosed with cancer, in the year that I lost my father, in the year that my marriage fell apart. In the year that my hopes for the future died. In the year that my vision died. In the year that my dreams died. In the year that my child died. You see in this, whenever you're faced with trouble and tragedy, whatever why questions you have in that day, in that week, in that month, in that year, what you need most is to see this picture of God Right here in Isaiah 6. You need to see behind the scenes of what's going on in your world and to see that God, no matter what is going on, no matter how bad things seem to be, God is still sovereign over your world and you need to see it and you need to believe it and you need to preach it to yourself. God is still on the throne. Evil is not in control. Injustice does not rule. Corruption is not king. Satan will not have victory. No, God is still calling the shots for your highest good even though sometimes it doesn't seem like things are arranged for your highest good. Now, all of Scripture shows us the sovereignty of God in action. It's on every page in living color. You see it in stories. You see it in people's lives. You hear it in poetry, in Proverbs. You hear it proclaimed by the prophets. And you hear it in what Jesus and the authors of the New Testament teach us. Let me just give you a couple examples. Let's just do a little Bible flyover. Like when you look at the exodus of God leading his people out of slavery in Egypt, of how God deals with Pharaoh, of how God sends plague after plague, of how God parts the Red Sea, how God cares for and feeds his people in their wilderness wanderings. You see that God does what he wants, when he wants, through whom he wants, how he wants, where he wants, and nobody can stop him. God is sovereign. In Exodus, you see that there are no limits to God's power and authority. You see that he answers to no one. You see that there's nothing he cannot do. You see that no king or earthly ruler can stop him. Now, on that note, Proverbs 21, 1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it where he will. Psalm 22:28 says, For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. And then Daniel 2.21 says, he changes times and seasons, he removes kings, and he sets up kings. Now, do you know what that means? It means that whatever you think of politics and elections, God is ultimately the one that decides and controls who wins and who loses. God decides. It means God sovereignly decides outcomes. And that also means that all our worrying, all our frustrations, all our anger, all our anxiety, all of our never-ending conversations about what's going to happen and what if this happens, that simply reflects a lack of faith in God and his sovereign control over all things. Listen, it might seem like things are falling apart in our country today, and it, and it may be true that they are, but behind the chaos of human government... Behind the rise and fall of national leaders, behind the greed and corruption of political parties, God sits on the throne, high and lifted up. He rules over rulers, he governs over governments, and he raises up both good, listen, and bad leaders for his good purposes, and in so doing, God charts the course of human history, bringing it to his predetermined end. God alone is sovereign. Isaiah saw it. Do you? Hear me. If you do not hold this core belief tightly, if you slip into panic mode, into the default mode of why and why this and why that, every time you hear more bad news on the bad news channels... You'll constantly be running around like chicken little. The sky is falling. The sky is falling. And God doesn't need any more chicken little Christians. Come on, get a grip. Get a grip on God's sovereignty and don't let go no matter what happens in this country. Because if you stay in why and what if mode, you'll never have peace of mind and peace of soul. And peace of heart. And listen, you'll never, God will never be able to use you as His spokesman during these disturbing days for things that have eternal significance. So the scriptures show us that clearly that God sovereignly directs the course of human history he is king of kings and lord of lords no human ruler no human government can thwart his purposes for a nation or for his people and there are many 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 examples of this that run from Genesis to Revelation it's on every page in living color Now, here's another example. This one comes from Jonah's day, and I'm trying to use stories like the Exodus and Jonah that most people know about, but, you know, God had to take Jonah to the woodshed to show him that he sovereignly does whatever he pleases, especially when it comes to saving the people that Jonah hated, the immoral, cruel, unjust Ninevites. Now, you remember the story. Unlike Isaiah, who's like, here I am, send me. You know, Jonah is like, I'm going that way. And when God was calling him to go this way, he's running the exact opposite direction. He gets on a boat, and what does God do? First, God hurls a great wind at the boat, a storm. And he hurls a storm at the boat, and that gets Jonah thrown overboard. Then what happens? Then God appoints a great fish to swallow Jonah, to give Jonah some time to wake up and repent. And when he does, after being vomited up on the beach, Jonah goes and preaches and the Ninevites miraculously repent and God doesn't destroy them like Jonah had hoped. So then what happens? Well, Jonah goes off to sulk and have a pity party because he wanted God to destroy him just like Sodom and Gomorrah. And he sits down under a leafy bush that provides him with some shade, some relief from the sun. And get this, God appoints a worm to attack the bush. So the, with the so it withers and dies and leaves Jonah roasting in a hundred degree heat of the sun, kind of like he must have been in Greenville, this, you know, during these days. Now, do you see this? Even the worms obey God's command. Worms, Yahweh is Lord over everything, storms, sea creatures, and subterranean, creepy crawly worms. I mean, is that not incredible? Doesn't that blow your mind? And when you think, why do you think the story of Jonah is in the Bible? Do you see that it, it, it that it's in the Bible because it's just another picture of God's sovereignty, just like the just like, but different from the picture of God's sovereignty in Isaiah six and just like, but different, from the picture of God's sovereignty in the Exodus story. but you got to say there's more here. there's much more here. In the Jonah story, God's not just showing us his sovereignty, uh, just to show show us that he's boss over uh, uh, wind and whales and worms. God's not flexing his muscles to impress us. No, 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 no. God is unleashing all of this power as a tool of his goodness and grace. The wind and waves are a tool of his grace. The great fish is a tool of his grace. And the worm is a tool of his grace. How so? Because, first... Through his great power, God works to save the ungodly Ninevites, Israel's hated enemies. I mean, can you believe that? In his mercy and grace, God saves them through Jonah's preaching. But second, we see grace in the fact that the wind, the whale, and the worm, that ought to be like a C.S. Lewis story, children's story, the wind, the whale, and the worm, Maybe I'll write a children's book and call it that. But anyway, the wind and the whale and worm are tools of God's sovereign grace in Jonah's life because God's after Jonah's hard heart. So God sovereignly unleashes his power and his rule to graciously rescue and redeem Jonah if he'll see it. And so what we're seeing here is God's sovereign power and his sovereign goodness working together. Now, building on that truth, let me give you another example of God's sovereignty and goodness, but this time from the teaching of Jesus. And by the way, this comes right out of Tripp's book. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 29 to 31, Jesus says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground without your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are more You are of more value than many sparrows. Now, think about that. Is there anything more normal or incidental than the death of little birds? I mean, on the surface, birds die as a part of the regular cycle of nature. Now, this is interesting. Tripp says, he got intrigued by this, so he Googled how many birds die each day in America, and he was amazed to find that. 13,700,000 13,700,000 birds die each day. That's, that's five billion a year. Now this will blow your mind. Jesus says that not a single bird falls without, he doesn't say without God's knowledge, without God's involvement. It's much, what he's saying is much stronger than just God knows that this happens. It's, it means that no bird falls without Uh, No bird falls apart from your father's rule, from his sovereign rule, apart from his causal authority. God is sovereign over that whole thing in nature. But there's something more you need to see in this passage because Jesus identifies the sovereign one as your father. God is not the sovereign one who's distant and impersonal. No, the sovereign one is our father who rules this world, and he does so with the love and the wisdom and protective care of a good father for his children. He rules over all things with love and grace in his heart. He will always do what is best, even if we lack the capacity to see what's best, He will not abandon his authority or surrender his control to another. And when it comes to God's sovereign care for us, the psalmist is right that God never sleeps and never slumbers. And if that's not enough, Jesus tells us one more amazing aspect of your heavenly Father's rule. He says, even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Now with some of your heads, it's easy to count and, uh, and, uh, and for me, I don't know how he keeps track of the hairs on my head because I get up every morning and there's a bunch of hair in my sink. <laughs> God has an intimate involvement with everything that happens in our lives and he keeps an accurate accounting of the number of hairs on your head. That just blows my mind. Let me give you one last example. Let's go back to Isaiah again, but not Isaiah 6 this time, Isaiah forty. Isaiah chapter 40. Now, in Isaiah 6, when God calls Isaiah to be his spokesman, he tells Isaiah that his ministry is going to be a failure. He says, nobody's going to listen to you. You're going to preach your heart out and not one person is going to listen to you. So Isaiah says, so how long is this going to go on? And Yahweh says, well, until the cities are laid waste and their houses are deserted, until the whole country is a wasteland, until the Lord has sent everyone away and the entire land of Israel is invaded, burned, and left desolate. So Isaiah 1 through 39 are Isaiah's sermons and prophecies calling Israel out for its sin. And we hear over and over again in those chapters that God's judgment is coming. And he's preaching this around uh, 700 B.C., 700 years before Christ. And the big event that he's talking about that's coming is not the Assyrians, it's the Babylonians And when the Babylonian Empire reaches its peak, it just comes rushing right through Israel and Judah. And they sack Jerusalem and burn it to the ground. And they loot the temple of Yahweh in Jerusalem and burn it to the ground. And they deport thousands of Israelites into exile. And all of this is happening because of the horrible decisions that Israel's leaders have made through the centuries. So when we turn the page from Isaiah 39 to Isaiah 40, now all of a sudden, the way that the book of Isaiah is structured, all of a sudden you're jumping ahead decades and decades. The perspective of the prophet in Isaiah 40 is now that the, the Babylonian uh, attack and the exile, Babylon, it's in the past. And so Isaiah is speaking now to people who are withering under the heat of Babylonian oppression. They're an enslaved people. They're suffering in the tragedy of exile. So this is the word of the prophet to people who have why and what if questions. Isaiah 40 verse 1, comfort. Comfort my people, says God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her warfare has ended, that her sin has been paid for, and that she's received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So Israel's paid her due. And God is saying, you've paid for your sins. Exile is soon to be over. It's coming, to, coming soon. So go down to verse 9. You who bring good news to Zion. And Zion is another, just another name for it, Jerusalem. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Don't be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, what? Here is your God. What's the name of our series? Here is your God. You see, the people have been suffering in exile and hardship, and they've forgotten who God is. They've forgotten what he's like, and the prophet comes to remind them, here is your God. So what is God like? Verse 10, see, the sovereign Lord comes with power. He rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him, and his recompense, his restitution accompanies him. You see, he's saying, your sovereign Lord, he's powerful. He's all-powerful. That's who your God is. Exile doesn't mean that God has forgotten about you. Exile doesn't mean that God's promises for Israel have failed. Exile doesn't mean that the world is spinning out of control. No, God is powerful, and he's coming to rescue. Verse 11, now look at this. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He leads those who have young. Your sovereign Lord is like a gentle shepherd. He's powerful, but he's like a shepherd. He's gentle. He's tender. He picks you up like he's picking up a little baby lamb. You see, here is your God. All powerful. All good. Keep reading. Goes back to the power side. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Well, who? Your powerful God. Who's held the the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in the balance? Answer, your sovereign God. Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord or who can instruct the Lord as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him and who taught him the right way? Who taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Answer, nobody, no one. He's all powerful. He's in control. He's working out his purposes and plans and he's good. He's gentle. He's powerful and he's good. I encourage you. I just want to encourage you, like this next week, grab a cup of coffee and every day just read Isaiah 40. Read it in a bunch of different translations if you want to. But read Isaiah 40 every morning and you will see affirmation after affirmation. Here is your God, sovereign king, gentle shepherd, all-powerful, all-personal. All personal. He's in control of all things. And he cares deeply for you in all things. Even though sometimes it doesn't feel that way. So why is the prophet speaking to the people in this way? Yeah, he wants them to understand what God is like. But there's something else going on. Look down in verse 27. Verse 27 shows us why he's been saying what he's saying. Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my cause is disregarded by my God? You see what he's doing? He's quoting the people here. They're complaining, they're sitting in exile and and, and what are they asking? What are they wrestling with? What are they saying? They're questioning God's goodness. That's what they're doing. They're saying, it's like God's just ignoring us. Like we're sitting hundreds of miles uh, from our homeland. The walls of Jerusalem now are just piles of rubble. Where, where is God in all of this? It's like we're hidden from him. He, it's like we're lost to him. It's like we're disregarded by God. He is ignoring us. He pays us no attention. He doesn't care about us. You see, Isaiah 40, in Isaiah 40, the prophet is responding to the complaints of his people we see that in verse 27. Yeah, it's true. It's true when suffering, when hardship hits, we go back into our why questioning default mode, our default mode of complaint. Like I said earlier, people have struggled with this for centuries, and we and we we we, we say we believe that God's all powerful. We say that we believe that God is all good, but when trouble and tragedy come, we can't put those things together with our circumstances, and make them make sense. And so we're like, the world's falling apart. My world is falling apart. Like, where is God? What's he doing? Why isn't he stopping this? Why is he letting this happen to me, to them, to her, to him? Uh, Has God just forgotten me? Jen Wilkin, in her book, None Like Him, Ten Ways That God Is Not Like Us, she nails it when she writes: the idea of God's infinite rule—that says divine sovereignty—is not only hard to grasp; it is difficult to trust. It's difficult to trust. God's sovereignty is difficult to understand. That's one thing, but it, it's and, and because it's hard to understand, it makes it difficult to trust. Right, we live in a world that seems out of control. We live in a world where good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people. And we live in a world where hard things, difficult things, tragic things happen to you and to the people you love and and to people you've never met. And so, yeah, the question is, if God is good, if God's powerful, then why? Why doesn't he do something? just doesn't make any sense and we want things to make sense don't we I mean we want answers to our why questions and when we don't get the answers that we want it makes it difficult for us to trust God but think trusting God means you don't need answers to all your why questions trusting God means you do not demand that God explain himself to you because as the Apostle Paul said, we walk by faith and not by the answers to our why questions. So what do you do? All right, number one, never demand answers to your why questions. Never demand answers to your why questions. except once and for all that there are no satisfying answers to your why questions. There are no satisfying, fully satisfying answers to your why questions, at least not in this life. And you got to accept that and settle it in your mind and heart and accept and decide once and for all never to demand that God answer your why questions. Don't live under the tyranny of why. Don't live in bondage to why. It'll destroy you, it can take you down and shipwreck your faith. There are no satisfying answers. Accept that and don't demand answers. The second point that I want to make here is submit your why questions to God by submitting yourself to God. Submit your why questions to God by submitting yourself to God. He is your king. That means he is always for you. He is your shepherd. That means he is always with you. Don't demand that he explain himself to you. Isaiah said... Later in Isaiah, or earlier in Isaiah 55, that God's thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are not our ways and his ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And Now, you know what that means? It means that most of what you want answers to, you wouldn't understand even if God tried to explain it to you, <laughs> right? Because it's not possible for us hum- puny humans <laughs> to understand his wisdom because his decisions are unsearchable and his paths are beyond tracing out, as the Apostle Paul puts it in Romans eleven thirty-three, Submit yourself and your why questions to God. This is what it sounds like in prayer. Heavenly Father, I don't have to understand why this has happened in my life. I don't have to understand why in order for me to trust you. I want you to know that I do trust you Because I know that I know that I know that you are in control of my life and I know that you do care about me. I know that you are with me and for me and I will rest in that even though I might not understand. That's what submitting yourself to God looks like. Then number three, take your why questions to the cross and leave them there. Take your why questions to the cross and leave them there. Now, as I said earlier, all of Scripture shows us the sovereignty of God in action. The entire biblical story is a story of God sovereignly controlling human history and caring for the people that he has sovereignly called to himself. God has ruled over every situation, every person, every family, every location that was necessary for human history to march toward the coming of Jesus, The entire storyline of the Bible shows us clearly that God's power and goodness have always been at work for our good and his glory so that Jesus could be the final sacrifice on the cross. And when we don't understand why, what we need to remember is that the cross forever stands as a monument to God's power and goodness. The cross forever stands as a monument to God's power and goodness. You see, the Bible doesn't exist to answer our why questions like some divine theology answer book. It doesn't give us an answer for why bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people. It doesn't give us an answer to why you are in the particular circumstance you're in or why. A series, a certain series of troubling events have come into your life. It doesn't answer why questions for us like that. Now, the Bible takes us to the cross, and at the cross, we see that God's sovereign control over all things, and we see his care. For us in all things. At the cross, we see that God is not some distant, uncaring, absentee, stern, authoritarian God, but we see that He cares for us deeply. At the cross, we see that God sovereignly orchestrated history so that he would enter his own world as a human being and he would carry and shoulder the weight of human sin and suffering by taking it into himself. Christian, here is your God on the cross, high and lifted up, dying for you so he could be with you. Take your why questions to the cross and leave them there because the cross more than anything else assures us that God is in control and that God cares for us more than we can ever imagine. Let's go back to that woman I told you about earlier, that 40 year old Christ following woman who just learned she had a potentially terminal illness or that young man who thought God was leading him and his girlfriend towards marriage but then she changed her mind or that junior high skateboarder whose dog died. If you were sitting in front of any of these people and they said to you, why did God let this happen? Why, 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 why didn't God stop this from happening to me? What do you say to somebody like that? You could say something like this. I honestly don't know. I don't know. And the tough thing is, the Bible doesn't tell us why either. For one reason or another, God doesn't tell us why bad things like this happen. And I personally know how hard that is. I know it's hard. But we are told what the answer is not. We are told what the answer cannot be as to why bad things come into our lives. The answer cannot be that God doesn't care. And the answer cannot be that things are out of God's control. Can't be. Cannot be. And what I've come to see and what I've come to rest in is that the cross is the final statement that God is in control and he cares for me more than I can imagine. The cross shows me that things are not out of control. The cross shows me that God loves me in the midst of suffering because God himself in the person of Jesus, suffered the worst pain that this world could hurl at him, could hurl hurl at us. God himself took upon himself my sin and my shame and my suffering. And not only that, not only did God suffer for me on the cross, he suffered with me. On the cross, God identifies with our suffering. He shoulders our hurt. He carries our pain and disappointment and nothing that you and I go through or will ever go through we will we won't ever go through anything or ever go through anything that he hasn't already gone through himself on that cross he knows your pain and suffering because he's been there now think about that if that's what god has done for us would an uncaring god do that could a powerless god do that Yeah, there are no satisfying answers as to why bad things happen to us. But the cross tells us that the answer cannot be that God doesn't care and that things are out of control. I'd say something like that. So let me ask you. Have you been wronged by someone? Some injustice, some relational wrong? Then look to the cross. Look to the cross where an innocent man is condemned by an unjust, corrupt government. Look to the cross where Jesus is abandoned by every person that he loves and cares about. Have you lost a loved one? Look to the cross where your heavenly father gave up his son for you and me. Is your body broken? Are you in physical pain? Look to the cross. Look at Jesus' body Broken for you? Do you feel abandoned by God in your circumstances, like He's not listening to you, like He's not paying any attention to you, like He's left you out to dry? Look to the cross where Jesus felt abandoned by God when He said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I love what Tim Mackey has to say about that. He says, The mystery of the cross is that God becomes God forsaken in order to identify with us in our suffering. God becomes God forsaken. To identify with us in our suffering. We don't get an answer to our why questions. But we're told what the answer cannot be. It cannot be that God doesn't care. It cannot be that God isn't good. It cannot be that things are out of control. And I don't know what word the cross and the resurrection speak to you today. But I do know it's very, very challenging. This is the one of those questions It just wreaks havoc on our hearts and our minds and our souls. And when you find yourself in hardship, when you find yourself hurt and confused and asking why, when you find yourself wrestling with what in the world is God doing in my life, wondering how God could bring any kind of resurrection out of the circumstances you're in, look to the cross. I don't know where you are, but I do know that some of you are right in the thick of Isaiah 40, 27. I just feel like God doesn't care. I just feel like he's ignoring me. Listen, the gospel gives you a word of challenge, and it gives you a word of hope. It challenges you to trust God in spite of all your why questions, to trust God by not demanding that he answer your why questions, To trust God by submitting your why questions to the wisdom of God, to the love of God by submitting yourself to God. And it challenges you to trust God by taking your why questions to the cross and leaving them there. And then the gospel gives you hope. The hope that comes from believing, and I'm talking about believing deep, deep down in your soul that God is really in control and that God really does care for you more than you can imagine even when it doesn't feel that way. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I ask you for faith. We ask you for courage to take hold of the hope that you give us in the cross and the empty tomb. And God, would you help us to see that in the cross, you're suffering with us, alongside us, and for us. Help us to see that we're not alone, and that you do have a future for us. And God, would you give us hope to believe that in your time and in your way, you can bring resurrection, Out of the circumstances that we're in now. And we trust you to do that. And we pray all these things in faith and trust. In Jesus name. Amen.